today we will continue our study through the Gospel of John, and we are now in chapter 7. The title of the message is Jesus, the Divider of Men. Now, it's important to remember that the purpose for John's writing is to what? It is to declare the deity of Jesus Christ. That He is God in human flesh. And we witness throughout this gospel the many different reactions to His person, to His power, and to His public proclamations regarding Himself. For seven chapters, we witnessed how Jesus entered the world, how He entered public ministry as God in human flesh. The very light in the midst of darkness. And that light lays bare the condition of every human heart. John chapter 1 verse 5 regarding Jesus says, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. John describes this invasion of life as as a very type of judgment. In John chapter 3 verse 19, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Reason being that light penetrates darkness. It unveils what is hidden. And those who love darkness will hate the light and they will struggle with great effort to shield that light, which is to shield gospel truth. John 1.11 tells us that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. His own being Israel. The fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophesied regarding Messiah. He came to his own. His own rejected him. Now when it comes to discussions of belief in Jesus, there's either sweet unity or great division. A people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, in other words, true believers... If one does not have the resident presence of the living God, the Holy Spirit, they're not saved. They're not a Christian. But those who are born again and have the Spirit of God and have an accurate understanding of God's Word, you will come to realize that there is either sweet unity and fellowship as members of the household of faith. Ephesians chapter 2.19 declares that we as true believers are members of the household of faith. There's sweet unity. There's many who claim to know Jesus, but if you plow a little bit, if you dig in a little bit, you will come to realize that they will eventually expose a different Jesus. A relative Jesus. As you declare the gospel, as you witness, or you confront those who claim to be Christian and challenge faulty thinking in regard to who Jesus is and what he's claimed of himself through scripture you will oftentimes be labeled as troublesome divisive overly dogmatic and I'm not talking about splitting hairs here over secondary theological issues that's not what I'm talking about there's a time for that there's a place for that but that's not the focus of discussion this morning Because to do that, 
you, you'll be viewed as an irritant. People will run from you. What I'm talking about is essential Christian doctrine. Particularly, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the atonement, the deity of Jesus, His death, His resurrection, and His lordship. The necessity of being born again, which generates repentance and submission to Jesus Christ. That truth will divide. That is divisive. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus himself said, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. In Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus said, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. In John 9, 16, which we'll get to in a few mo- uh, weeks, Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. In Luke 13, 23, as Jesus was walking about doing ministry, someone cried out and they said, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter, and they will not be able. Many will seek, but few will find. The indispensable certainty of division among people, I believe, is laid out in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. And again, the words of Jesus Christ himself, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. It's very important to understand that the ultimate end of the gospel, my friends, my brothers and sisters, the ultimate end of the gospel is peace with God. Because before one submits to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are at war with Him. And He is at war with you. Peace with God, however, has an earthly result. The true gospel results in conflict. Not the watered-down gospel. You can get a lot of people to agree with the watered-down gospel. They'll sl- you can slap each other on the back and hug each other with a generalized, unbiblical gospel. But the true gospel, the biblical gospel, stirs up disdain, conflict. True Christianity oftentimes results in strained relationships, persecution, and even death. To truly follow Jesus Christ presupposes a willingness to endure adversity. This is what the church must know. If the church does not know this, they will not be able to communicate the true gospel. In order to know this, they must know what the Bible means by what it says. They must know doctrine, correct teaching. In order to herald the truth of God, you must know the sense of Scripture. 
You must not only know what it says, but you must know what it means by what it says so that you can be an effective ambassador for Jesus Christ. The very reason for which the church is to study doctrine. I heard a heartbreaking thing this week. Someone said, they sent me a clip that a pastor stood up before his church and he said, church is not a place to study the Bible. That's what Bible college is for. That is heartbreaking. That is heart-wrenching. Then he proceeded to say, now open your Bibles too. Whatever. (laughs) How sad. There's clear instruction through the pastoral epistles as to what a pastor is to be, to what the gathering of the saints is to be. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16 says, Take heed to yourself, pastor, that is, and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. 1 Timothy chapter 4, backing up a little bit, verse 6 and 7. If you instruct the brethren, who's the brethren? Sinners saved by grace. That's the church. See, if you don't want to teach the Bible, then don't call yourself church. Just take church off of there and then you can be whatever sinner you want. The church means called out ones. Sinners saved by grace. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Study to show thyself approved, a workman who's not ashamed. Rightly what? Dividing the truth. Instruction to the church, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. If you don't know what you believe, how can you communicate that divine truth? You can't. You will be impotent. Powerless. There's this delusion within evangelical circles today that claims that in order to be saved, you simply repeat a prayer. Becoming a Christian is not dependent upon whether or not you accept Jesus, but rather, does He accept you? That's the question. To be saved, you must be perfect. That's impossible. To be saved, one must have covering himself or herself the perfect, imputed righteousness of Christ. That's the only way to be accepted by God. Many people accept Jesus, but the problem is they're not accepted by Him because they're not cleansed, purified, justified, sanctified. To challenge this erroneous, feel-good gospel that is so popular today is to be labeled as being divisive or dogmatic. When in reality, brothers and sisters, it is Jesus who's the divisive and dogmatic one. Because it's His gospel. We don't change His gospel. We don't manipulate His gospel. It's His gospel which is eternal. But such division is nothing new. As John 7 verse 43 will disclose for us this morning and that is our focal point. John chapter 7 verse 43 it reads for us, So there was a division among the people because of Him. Because of Him. Now to get an idea of what's going on, let's read together verses 40 to 52. 
The Word of the Living God says, verse 40, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look. No prophet is arisen out of Galilee. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your glorious, everlasting, ever-abounding, authoritative, unchanging truth. And I pray this morning that you would edify your church, your people, to be encouraged, to understand that they will face all types of opposition in this world. They will face all kinds of different gospels that aren't biblical. And I pray that it would give them a hunger to declare the true gospel, your gospel, the gospel according to your son, Jesus Christ. Equip us, Lord, by your grace, we pray. Illumine for us within our minds and hearts this glorious truth and to be able to communicate it with divine power. And for anyone here, Lord, who is yet dead in trespasses and sins, I pray that you would grant them repentance and cause them to be born again this morning by the authority of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Together we all say, Amen. Now, in John 7, we read about Jesus in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's among his own people, the Jews. He's proclaiming eternal truth for the sake of recognition as the very Son of God. Messiah. All the while, he's besieged with questions and condemnation by those who claim to be experts in theology. The claims of Jesus on this last day of the feast have intensified from the time of his arrival, which was midpoint of the feast back in verse 14. For it was then that he entered the temple, he came in to teach, and the Jews marveled at his knowledge. They were amazed at his authority, is declared in verse 15. In verse 16, Jesus declared that his doctrine, key word, doctrine, was not of an earthly origin. In verse 17, he throws at them a subjective test. He says, you want to see whether my doctrine is heavenly or earthly? Put it to the test. He calls out in verse 18, the, he, what he's saying is, is, you know, the megalomaniacs, the aggrandizers, who seek their own glory, who seek their own following, all the while will refer to themselves as ministers, when in reality they're nothing but hirelings, they will bring their own message. They will place themselves as the front man. Jesus goes on in verse 19, and he accused the false, pious attempts of the religious law keepers as total failures. Indictment right in their face. 
And he accused them of actually wanting to murder him. Verse 22, he says, Look, you do the work of cutting one part of a male child on the Sabbath. Okay? You go in on the Sabbath and you'll perform circumcision. And yet you're angry with me for making a paralyzed man whole, totally complete on the Sabbath. Remember they accused Jesus of violating the Sabbath, being a lawbreaker. And then they actually went on in chapter 5 to accuse him of blasphemy because he declared himself to be equal with God and to declare to be equal with God is to declare to be deity. That would be blasphemy unless, of course, you were God. Amen? Come on, somebody. In verse 24, Jesus warned them not to judge him or his work merely by appearance. In the immediate context, the immediate context of verse 24 is to be seen in light of verse 17, where Jesus said, If any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. That's the subjective test. And that is the only pragmatic analysis for which Jesus can be tested with by anybody. You want to know if he's real? Do what he says. Period. Look at the evidence of Christ. Measure it based on fact. Test His Word by doing it. If your conclusion is, in the end, that He's not who He claimed to be, it will be revealed to you sooner or later that He was not wrong, you were wrong. Amen? Whether it's now or in the judgment. The individual who puts Him to the test saying that Jesus failed, they will see that they failed, failed to adhere to the truth, to recognize the truth. So the people began to murmur. They wanted to take him, but they couldn't, for his hour, what? Had not come. In verse 34, Jesus says, Where I am going, you cannot come. And why is that? Because the fate of unbelievers is hell. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And then in verse 37 to 38, Jesus leaves. He comes back on the last day of the feast. The last great day of the feast. And in the midst of heightened celebration, while the Jews were reacting a tradition that could never satisfy the heart, of which was this. On that last day of the feast, the priests would march down to the pool of Siloam with a golden vessel. They would fill that golden vessel up. They would come back reciting hymns. And they would come out. And the Jewish men would be standing there with palm branches and leaves, waving them, holding fruit up in the other hand. They would come with that water and they would pour out the water of Siloam upon the altar at the temple. Remembering, during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was to pitch up these little huts made out of sticks and leaves to recall and remember how God provided for Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Feast of Tabernacles, tents, dwelling places. What Jesus is saying here in verses 37 and 38, He's saying, look, do you not recognize that this water points to me in addition to the rock from which it came in that wilderness? Everything you're celebrating points to me. All the reminders as to the sustained life of your ancestors in the wilderness in which God provided for, they have no vital significance apart from me. The Apostle Paul took the same image and applied it to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 10, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. 
all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now if you recall, during the great exodus as they wandered through the wilderness, God led Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They passed through the Red Sea, miraculously. All ate the same spiritual food. What was that? Manna from heaven. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So the echo of divine authority shouted out in the temple that day arrested their attention. The reason? Because only God, only God in human flesh could speak with such authority. Nevertheless, as mesmerized as they were, the response of the crowd reveals many reactions to Christ that are prevalent today. And in this narrative, we observe four reactions. They're outlined for you in your bulletin. Number one is the superficial approval of the people in verses 40 and 41. Number two is the scriptural reciting of the biblically illiterate. You will run into these people. Number three is the aggressive, hostile antagonist revealed in verses 44 to 49. And then finally, number four, you see one who stands in the midst of opposition, verses 50 and 52. All of which cause, verse 43, division. Division. Because of Jesus, there is and always will be division among the people. So in this respect, it is naive for us to believe that the good news of the gospel is going to be embraced with warm reception. Amen? That would be ignorant of us. It is presumptuous to think that the world is an eager vessel waiting to be filled with the glorious waters of life that you're going to speak out to them. Amen? The world is in rebellion. And the world is skilled at asking religious questions for which they do not want to know the answers. Their questions are simply a disguise for their seemingly sophisticated rebellion. Men love darkness more than they love the light. That's why they run. That's why you used to run. That's why I used to run. You were granted the grace to see the light. You and I are no better than anyone else running around in rebellion. You were delivered from the bondage of sin and death. That's a grace gift. You didn't do anything to earn it, did you? Did anyone do anything to earn it? Nothing, amen? Grace. Grace. The people haven't changed. Just like in Jesus' day, they milled around the temple, they attended synagogue, they attended every religious feast, trusting in their heritage as their ticket to salvation. That's what the Jews did. They trusted in their lineage. They were of father who? Abraham. Therefore, we're in. We've been given the oracles of God. We have the law. We are God's chosen people. We are Israel, God's elect. But not all who are Israel are of Israel. Today, crowds of people claim to know Jesus Christ. They attend church regularly. They have this false sense of security of salvation because they attend church regularly. Or they recited some prayer in the past. They walked some aisle in the past. They're leaning on and they're trusting as in that for salvation. All the while, if you begin to talk to them, many want to argue with God about theology. 
They want to argue God. They want to argue with God about their theology. It's just that they speak it to you or through you, if you confront their erroneous ways of thinking. Now, the reactions that we're going to study here this morning should assist you in your evangelistic endeavors to know what you're up against if you don't already. It should be an encouragement to you. You're not going to win anyone to Christ by talking them into it. Amen? Never. If you can talk them into it, as you've heard it said, they can talk themselves out of it or someone else will. It must be by the Spirit of God with the truth of God, the true gospel. Not a watered-down gospel. Not Jesus wants to be your buddy. No. The true gospel. Look at the first reaction, verses 40 and 41. Beware here of the superficial approval, this clash of opinions to those who applaud Jesus. Oh yeah, he is great. Oh, he's the greatest teacher that ever lived. It says, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? So John now, in this narrative, returns to the opinions of the multitude. Many were impressed by his words. They affirmed him to be the prophet. This is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is the words of Moses, from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. The masses that witnessed the miracles of Christ back in chapter 6, verse 14. The, remember those Galileans who were following Jesus around as he was multiplying bread and fish and, and casting out demons and healing the lame and the sick and all that? They asked the same question. Is, could this be the prophet that is to come? This time they ask not because of the signs that he performed, but because of the words that he spoke. Just as Moses led Israel in the wilderness, providing water and manna, God providing through him, Jesus stands and claims to be the very bread and water of life. He said in chapter 6, I am the bread come down from heaven. Chapter 4, I am the living water. As he does here in chapter 7. Now, although they acknowledge Jesus as the prophet, it does not say that they embraced him as such. Talk is cheap, amen? A mere confession of faith means nothing if it's not followed by action. Regarding Christianity, one German philosopher is quoted as saying, Show me your redeemed life and I might believe in your Redeemer. All you who so boldly profess this Jesus Christ. Right? You're talking about a Redeemer? Where's the redemption in your life? Right? It's a fair question, amen? It's a fair question. Many say, but yet do not do. Many testify, but truly do not believe. Many people claim to know Jesus, and as soon as they are challenged with the true, authentic gospel, they say, my Jesus isn't like that. My Jesus would never do that. My Jesus would never send anyone to hell. My Jesus is not judgmental like that. Very important. Nobody has their own personal Jesus. If someone's personal Jesus is not the Jesus of the Scriptures, they don't have Jesus. You as a believer, I as a believer, we have a personal relationship with Jesus if He's the Jesus of Scripture. Then you have Jesus because He has you. 
The question is, how do you react? Those that have this Jesus, they have Jesus, this is my Jesus, and as you discuss Jesus, as you discuss Scripture, it's revealed that their Jesus is nothing like the Scriptures. How do you deal with that? Is their approval of Jesus merely external, traditional, or perhaps a figment of their own imagination? And then you just pat them on the back and go, hey, we're, we're all in the same club, we all love Jesus, rah, 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 right? Do you simply agree to disagree? Or do you take them to task? Of which we're called to do. If we're ambassadors for Him, then we need to take those to task who think they know Him and don't, according to the Scriptures. Many people don't speak up merely, simply because they fear rejection, persecution, and division. That's uncomfortable. Peter preached in Jerusalem after Pentecost and he declared in Acts chapter 3 verse 22, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. How do you deal with that? How do you gently present that? It's impossible. How do you gently present? It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You do it gently and in love, but you can't water that down. You cannot water that down. For Israel, covenant blessings don't exist simply because of national identity. He was the substance of the covenantal promises, and they missed him. Now, it's likely here in John that some indeed are genuine in their identifying Jesus as the prophet. But that group is always small. For Jesus said, many are called, but what? Few are chosen. The true family of God is a very small. Because Jesus said in the last, you know, in Matthew 7, many will cry out, Lord, Lord, many, and I will say to them, I never knew you. So the word truly here means genuinely or for certain. Genuinely, this is the prophet, or for certain, no doubt, this is the prophet. But however, there are many who say that Jesus truly is the Christ, yet theirs is another Jesus. It's very important that we remember this because you will face these people. You may be one of those today. I pray that the God Almighty will lift the veil of unbelief from your eyes today, if that is you. So here you have the superficial applausers of Jesus. The Jesus is my buddy Jesus, and my Jesus is Jesus, but he might be a little different from your Jesus. need to be addressed. That leads us to verse 42. Next we see, beware of the scriptural reciting of the biblically illiterate. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Now, part of the mob here proceeds to quote Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But how many in their ignorance quote scripture? They presume that Jesus is a Galilean. Right? That he was born there, and notice they never bother to ask. And it shows you that Jesus does not pander to hardened unbelief. He didn't say, hold on now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I heard you say Galilean, but I was born in Bethlehem. He never does that. They presume. 
This group could quote prophecy, yet the majority went to reject its fulfillment. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, was born in Bethlehem as the scriptures prophesied. This is simply another example of being acquainted with the letter of God's word minus faith to believe. Minus faith to believe. They quoted scripture as though they were familiar with its content, but they did not have eyes to see. They did not have ears to hear. And that was the indictment against Israel. John chapter 12 is a fulfillment of Isaiah that he would preach and preach and preach. They would have preach until they can't see anymore, until they're blinded, until they're deaf, till they won't be able to believe. It's right there in John 12, beginning around verse 37. So it's hazardous to be familiar with the words of Scripture and remain blind to their meaning. We have a great, great responsibility with the Word of God as children of God. Amen? We have a great responsibility to rightly handle it to the best of our ability by the grace of God. That's why we study here verse by verse. It's my responsibility to feed you. It's your responsibility to eat. (laughs) Right? But so many dear people wade through years of poor superficial teaching. May we not be such people. I mean, how else can you proclaim the truth of God? You can't. You can't point out erroneous teaching. You can't lead some poor lost sheep that's straying with a false view of God and an erroneous understanding of Scripture. You can't help them get on the right path unless you know it and can point it out. So many are common and familiar with the letters of Scripture, but they're still dead in trespasses and sins, such as these Pharisees such as the Galileans in chapter 6. Remember they followed Jesus around? The more hardcore the teachings of Christ became, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Well, these things are hard to understand, they said. And they went out and they walked with him no more. Jesus did not fall on his knees and say, please come back. No. He turned to the twelve and he said, do you want to go with them also? And then Peter, of course, Lord, we have nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. Why? He was granted grace to believe. He knew it. He knew his master. He knew the Lord. Many professing Christians, professing, that's the key word here, they profess Christ, they know the Scriptures, they're aware of the living Scriptures, but they remain spiritually dead. May we not pander to their false Jesus, may we love them enough to tell them the truth. Amen. This is our job. We're pilgrims for Christ. Amen? Pilgrims. James 2.19 says, You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe. You know what they do? They tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is what? It's dead. Arthur Pink said this, and I quote, Unless our hearts are affected and our lives molded by God's Word, we're no better off than a starving man with a cookbook in his hands. How true. How many people will will just float through life with a big Bible under their hand and they don't have the life of God in them? So in your evangelistic service, you will 
more often than not, encounter people that will gleefully say, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian too. You know, we have many fiery evangelists in this church. We're really blessed to be very evangelistic. What we do is equip the saints and then they go out and they evangelize. They evangelize in public, at the beach, at the parks. They go to college campuses. They do one-on-one evangelism as well as proclaiming the, the truth in the open square. That draws a crowd. People will come up and they go, hey man, this is great, I'm a Christian too. And then we love them enough and our evangelists love them enough to say, well, let me talk to you. He says, so you know Christ. Yes, I do. How long have you been a Christian? So and so many years. Well, that's great. Can you... What's the gospel? Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm no longer a bad example. Can you explain to me what sin is and how that hinders us from knowing God? Um, No, I can't. We can't be like that. And then, of course, we point them to the truth. They're proclaiming to be a Christian. They're proclaiming to know Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. They don't understand the bad. How, therefore, can it be good? So as you lovingly probe and proclaim the truth of God, there will, many, will be many that will, you will come across who suppose they are, are saved. They think they're saved because they know the Scripture. What it says. In John chapter 5, verse 39 Jesus said, You search the Scripture, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So the question is, why do they merely think that they have eternal life? And they don't. Why is that? You just back up one verse. John chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus said, But you do not have His Word abiding in you. And He goes on, Because whom He sent, Him you do not Believe. Notice, His Word abiding and Him, Jesus, are synonymous. Jesus is the Logos. He is the Word. You can know about it, but not know Him. Unless He abides in you. So, these words here, brothers and sisters, they're recording for our learning. First, Each professing Christian must seriously examine themselves. Am I abiding? Am I saved? Number one. Secondly, when we understand that we're in Christ, and His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We can have that assurance. We're supposed to have that assurance. Amen? Unless we're wandering in rebellious, blatant sin, then that assurance will be rattled. Secondly, as we confirm the gospel of Christ... We have to know that there are many that can quote Scripture, they can quote it accurately, but yet give no evidence of having been born again. I was downtown, walking through downtown a couple of nights ago. Walking around downtown, and you run into all kinds of people downtown. It's always an inst- interesting venture to go wandering through downtown or the beach or the boardwalk. Came across one guy, as I turned a corner, he was lunging up on his girlfriend or wife or whatever, he was getting ready to pop her one. So I just stood there and made sure he saw me. I'm thinking, lift your hand, and I'll introduce you to the concrete. (laughs) Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, amen? (laughs) You make peace, you don't suggest it, you make it. That means you stop hostility. So he saw another man there and I looked him in the eye and 
He backed up. Run across some other people. Then I was in a conversation with one through the alcohol on his breath, proclaimed to be a Christian. You know Christ. Mm-hmm. He happened to know some scripture. And I said, you know, the Bible says, do not be deceived for neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor effeminate, nor drunkards, nor revilers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The answer, there's a fine line. There's a fine line between faith, the gospel, and what salvation is in the end. Fine line? A fine line means that it's vague. There's nothing vague about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lot that are, it is vague in the gospel that men present today, but there's nothing vague about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said there's two roads. One's broad, one's wide, and many people are on it and they think they're going to heaven. But the other is straight and it's narrow and very few go in that way. He didn't like that, but that's the truth. That's the truth. The reason is, Jesus said, Matthew seven fourteen, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and few go in that way. Why is it that it's narrow and it's anything but easy? The reason? Because His gate, His way, stands in direct opposition of everything that the sinful nature longs for. Everything that we desire... The gospel, the true gospel, the narrow gate, screams against it as our flesh screams against the narrow, straight way. So we hop on the broad road if we're not in Christ. That's the easy way. Everyone's on it. Jesus is my friend on the broad road too, amen? No, he said. There are many men who stand at pulpits who, who claim to preach the gospel. They preach the gospel, but it's a different gospel if you really listen, it, listen to it. They, they, they boast in being evangelistic. But the trouble with so many of them is that they're out of step with the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. They make it sound so easy to become a Christian. It's easy to get saved. Repeat this after me and you shall be saved. Stand where you are and be saved. Come forward, they'll say, and be born again. Can you get born again by just walking somewhere? Jesus said, as the wind blows to and fro, you do not know where it comes from nor where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. You don't know how it happens because it's the supernatural work of God. Amen? So you have many people who are just floating along and you're going to come in contact with people and they think that they know Him when they don't. When you really talk to them, they know nothing about Him. That's heartbreaking. So understand that you will come in contact with these people as you uphold the call to preach the gospel to every creature. William Hendricks, Hendrickson comments on this, and he said, and I quote, Our Lord does not follow the method that is used by certain self-styled revivalists who speak as if getting saved is one of the easiest things in the world. Jesus, on the contrary, pictures entrance into the kingdom as being, on the one hand, most desirable, yet on the other, not at all easy. The entrance gate is narrow. It must be found. It's not as easy as standing where you are. It's not as easy as saying this or that. It's a matter of counting the cost, denying yourself, picking up your cross, following after Him, 
crucifying yourself. And here it is, repenting. Repentance is fruit of salvation. So if you're going to challenge the many misinterpretations of the true gospel, you may be viewed as being divisive. Okay? But remember, the cause of it all is right here, verse 43. Look on to verse 43. So there was a division among the people because of Him. If this was the case when Christ walked the earth, don't be surprised as you faithfully serve Him to face the same opposition. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, what? Will they not persecute you also? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice when they revile and say all kinds of things against you. For what? For my sake. See, the attack is not you, it's against him. His truth. His truth. On the other hand, these so-called evangelists throughout this nation especially, they're everybody's buddy, it seems. Everybody loves them, except the people who know the truth. They don't hate them, but they hate their message. Jesus said, Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Again, guys, when we preach the gospel, now the gospel's already an offense, amen? It is not our responsibility to, to make it more irritating. <laughs> don't add to the offense. Just preach it. Just speak it. Just speak God's words by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's offensive enough. Don't add to the offense. Don't be a jerk, in other words, amen? Just declare His truth and leave it be. Don't be the, the kid with the stick. You know, <laughs> just poking and poking. Just declare the truth. Don't be offensive for the sake of being offensive. Proclaim the gospel. It is the offense. There's no neutrality with Jesus. The people who blatantly reject Him, the people who say, well, my Jesus is this, but it's a different Jesus... If there's those who say, well, Jesus is just all right with me, just like the Doobie Brothers said, but you know what? I just, I don't want to follow him right now. I'm just going to hold off a little bit. All of those people are identified as unbelievers. They're dead in their trust. It's not, they're not kind of saved. You're either on the narrow or the broad. You're either saved or you're unsaved. You're either regenerated, born again, or you're dead in your trespasses and sins. There's nothing in between. That leads us to the third group. Verses 44 to 49, the aggressive, hostile antagonists. Look at verse 44. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They wanted to take him into custody. The Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest him, but they would not, and they, here it is, could not, because it was not his hour, and his hour would not come until that predestinated from before the foundation of the earth moment of time was there. Then he would be delivered into the hands of man and crucified, but not one second before. Now they've been ordered to arrest Jesus, but they were arrested by His words. And then in verses 45 and 46, the Pharisees, the Pharisees asked why. They said, well, no man ever spoke like this. And again, the reason? Because it was God speaking. His words, as He said back in John chapter 6, verse 36, 
or 63 rather, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. His word is living. His word is active. His word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts and it divides. It inflicts pain and it heals. It heals. It's the only thing that heals eternally. But mere physical or mental understanding of the words of Jesus is no advantage, it's no reward. It is only the life-giving spirit that enables us to understand these words because these are divine words. Now, while his message has seized the minds of these temple guards, I believe that they were wrestling with truth. They were stunned. They went back empty-handed. You know, perhaps you're fighting against him today. Maybe you're here by the divine appointment of God and you're fighting against him. Your, your battle, though, it's in vain. It's in vain. God's word has gone out. And to claim ignorance does not excuse anybody. Anybody. If you're fighting against Him, if you're trying to rationalize against Jesus Christ as being the way, the truth, and the life, He laughs at your cunning folly, and eventually you will have to face His fury. My plea to you today, if that's you, is to repent and believe and be saved. Romans 2, verse 5, gives a strong warning. It says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He's not going to pop out of the sky to you. He said he's exalted his word to that of his own name. He's communicated to mankind through the word. Through the word. However, if you by His sovereign grace have been arrested by His words, submit to His Lordship because He is Lord regardless of what you think. Surrender your life to Him today. The Pharisees go on now and they resort to antagonistic ridicule. You're going to encounter these types of people. As you live the truth, as you proclaim the truth, you will come up against these types. They're fools in their folly. The Pharisees go on and they belittled and they scorned the common people. Look at verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law, they're accursed. In other words, this crowd or this people, that's a term of contempt. It's rendered as this rabble or this disorganized and disorderly crowd of people, this crazy mob, this riffraff, they're all accursed. They don't know the law like we do. We're the religious pious. We've got the robes. We got the big seats. Right? We're the scholars. They're saying, look, don't you see that we're the religious elite? And us, we, the pious ones, the righteous ones, we haven't gone after Jesus. Why are you going after Him? Now, nothing would have been more humiliating for the Pharisees than to see Jesus calling to Himself tax collectors, harlots, thieves, drunkards to Himself into the kingdom and leaving them, the ones who knew the words of the law, outside of the kingdom. <clears throat> Steeped in their religious attempts at righteousness, that's self-righteousness. To reject Christ, to think that you can do it on your own, that's the epitome of pride. 
That's being self-righteousness. That's being self-righteous. They stood here hiding behind their sanctimonious facade. And they were dead. They were dead in their sins and trespasses. Now, these rabbis, these law, really makers is what they were, they determined that there were 613 commandments. Okay? One for every letter of the Ten Commandments that God gave. Okay? So of those 613 commandments, 240 of them were seen as being affirmative, whereas 365 were viewed as being negative. Therefore, you have nothing more than a... All you have is a list of do's and what? Don'ts. Do this, and you're righteous. Don't do this, and you're righteous. If you do this and don't do that, you'll get to heaven. That's a lie from the pit of hell. These Pharisees feared losing their power and influence, notice this, over the people. These low-life retrobates, reprobate, reprobates they're, they're, they're not able or academically qualified to know who the Messiah is. These fools. How often do you hear by the intellectual elite that only the fools and only those who need a crutch follow after Jesus? Huh? This here, this is the chief characteristic of false religion. Setting in place some prophet or some pope who hears from God outside of the word of God. You keep people steeped in ignorance and you control them. And you tell them what they can and cannot do. This group you will face. You will face them in your college classrooms. <laughs> Amen? I know many of you do, and I know many of you have challenged them, and that's praise be to God for that. There's actually been fruit in that. Someone in this class who's been doing that recently has actually been given the floor to speak. Come on! Speaking about sin and the wrath of God, which is the bad news, so that they can get to the what? Good news, which is the gospel. Your religious classrooms, world religions, professors. Whew. Never be intimidated by a guy or these days a gal who's being suffocated by some clerical caller. Ever. Or these liberal scholars, which is an oxymoron. You don't have to fear. You never have to fret because you in Christ possess eternal wisdom that they don't have. 1 Corinthians 1.26 Aaron read from it this morning. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and I am an example of that. And so are you. Finally, we meet one who stands in the midst of such opposition in verses 50 to 52. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, oh, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. So, a Pharisee speaks up. Nicodemus. Now, we meet him for the second time, don't we? 
but not the last. They just stated that no elite important teacher would believe on Christ back in verse 48. If you remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night back in chapter 3. He said, certainly, no one can do the works that you do unless God were with him. Jesus did not say, you're right, I'm Messiah. You know, I perform miracles, that's the power of God prophesied in times past. No. This is how Jesus responded. Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. And then, they go back and forth a little bit. Nicodemus, how can this be? Does a man enter his mother's womb a second time? How can you be born again? He talks about the water and the spirit. Which is spoken of in the Old Testament. Washing, cleansing. The Spirit of God, which take out the heart of stone and put on a heart of flesh. It's the divine work of God coming upon the sinner. How, how does this happen, he says. Jesus replied, as the wind blows to and fro, you do not know where, it go, know, know where it comes from, know where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? You're a scholar, Nicodemus. As a matter of fact, you're the representative of the Sanhedrin who likely sent him there to investigate. Right? He said, you're a teacher of Israel. But sovereign grace was doing a work in the heart of one of these Pharisees that enabled him the courage to stand. It doesn't get more hostile than this. Religious, false religious elite, and he makes a stand. He didn't say much, but he said something, didn't he? And we'll see him again in chapter 19 when he's helping Joseph of Arimathea take down the body of Christ wrap the body of Christ and put the body of Christ Savior in the tomb. I believe he came to true saving faith. Luke 15, 7 says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. See, the Pharisees were blind. They could not see their need and therefore had no need of repentance. Why had they have no need for repentance? They didn't see their need for mercy. You don't want justice. You want mercy. Everybody deserves the just wrath of God. That's what we deserve. If you're in Christ, you've been granted eternal life through His grace, the blood, and the faith that He's provided you to believe. And that is it. It's all a gift. You don't bring anything to the table in salvation. It's all a gift. They didn't see that. They missed it. Nicodemus stands up. A.W. Pink, again, he comments on Nicodemus, saying this, and I quote, John's Gospel depicts three stages in the spiritual career of Nicodemus. In John 3, it's midnight. In John 7, it's twilight. In John 19, it's daylight in the soul. The glorified Jesus Christ met met Saul of Tarsus who would become the great apostle Paul he met him he, he, he revealed himself to him and immediately he was born again transformed and here we see God doing this divine work of breaking it down you know what your responsibility is my responsibility is you plant the seed you water the seed only he can bring forth the harvest you're not going to talk anyone into believing amen it's our job to plant the same seed and water it Verse 52, we see the snide reply. Are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Well, these great scholars were wrong on that point. 
2 Kings 14.25 tells us that Jonah was from Galilee. Elijah and Elisha were from up in that area. When he says, are you from Galilee, is to say, are you also a Galilean? In other words, are you part of his entourage? Are you part of his party, Nicodemus? Snide, little, snarling, little, sarcastic sissies with big robes on is what they are. And that's how the narrative ends. But rather than ending on a negative tone, we want to conclude on a high note. And remember the cause of this divisive confusion, ignorance, and hostility. Now, although the Lord's statement, look at verse 37. Notice what Jesus says. On the last day, the great day of the feast, that's where we are. On that last day, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That declaration affects many differing responses to Jesus. Listen to this now. Concluding. Many, many, all people thirst. All people thirst. They're looking to fill this emptiness within them. They know there's something more to life. They don't know what it is. They want it quenched. So they try everything to fulfill and satisfy that thirst. Everybody thirsts. Many, many, many people come towards Christ. Those who thirst, they come. They come, they come to Christ by way of religious activity. They come by way of moral reform. AA and NA is filled with people giving themselves to moral reform. They've cleaned up an aspect of their life. They've met this higher power. They think that they know God and they have a false sense of security. Moral reform does not save. So they come close to Him. They come near to Christ by regular church attendance. They come near to Christ by saying a prayer. They come near to Christ by walking an aisle. They come near to Christ by signing some card. But all of those groups, many of those groups who come near to Christ never drink in Christ. Because they have no life. He's the living water. Therefore, they don't know Him that they've come near to. You don't get any nearer to Christ than Judas. Scary. He looked like the real deal. He sounded like the real deal. He cast out demons like the real deal with apostolic power granted by God for that time. And he was sorrowful for what he did. But it was a worldly sorrow that led to death. It was not a godly sorrow that 2 Corinthians talks about as being, what? Leading to repentance. It's those who come because they thirst. They not only come, but they drink in Christ. They embrace Christ. They bow down to Christ. They surrender to Christ because they've been born again by the Spirit of Christ. Those are believers. He who believes in me as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So, be encouraged, brothers and sisters. 
God will use you as a channel which His divine truth will not only fill up, but will spout up and out to impact other people who are lost. They're lost. He's the life in you. He's the life. He will burst up and out of you in proclamation, exclamation, and clarification as to who He is, what He's done, and how He has done it. That's the true gospel. That's the gospel. According to His word, by the power of His Spirit. Then you'll be a powerful ambassador for Jesus Christ. And you won't be so easily fooled by those who say, I love Jesus too, including your own kids, friends, family, neighbors. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you in thanksgiving, praise and adoration of your holy, mighty name. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for transforming us. We thank you for your true gospel. Lord, help us to constantly readjust our thinking and realign our methods, our mentality, spirituality in light of your living, active word, that we would be the most effective ambassadors for Christ that we can possibly be, not in our own might, nor our own strength, but by your spirit, saith the Lord. Pray that you'll bless your church here today, Lord, your people, sinners saved by grace, that an abundant amount of blessing would be poured out upon their lives, through their lives, that they would be those rivers of living water. And Lord, if there's anything stifling the well, may there be repentance. If there's a lack of hunger for the Word, I pray that there would be an established hunger and desire to feed on Your Word. I pray for divine appointments for every Christian in here today. That this next week there will be many divine appointments and I pray that they would stand for the truth boldly but yet in love pointing the true gospel out to those who are either in error or simply do not know it whatsoever. And I pray that through those divine appointments they would see the fruit of declaring and proclaiming your truth, faithful to your word for your glory alone. That they'd be edified, built up, and encouraged to make the stand, to walk in the power of the Spirit for your glory. Lord, for anyone here today who does not know you, who's been convicted to the core, I pray for your grace to manifest within them spiritual life. Bring them from death to life by the resident power of your Holy Spirit that they'll repent of their sin, call upon you for your mercy, and surrender their very lives to you who is Lord. We pray these things together as a family in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Together we all say, Amen.